chapter 3 this morning. We've been in the book of Colossians for some time now and uh, got to hear uh, from uh, several different people on staff uh, teach different sections of Colossians. Um, matter of fact, a few weeks ago, um, our youth minister Colton was up here and uh, he was teaching us through Colossians and through his sermon, he made the comment about how much he likes uh, Skyline Chili. And uh, it resonated with a couple of you because uh, some of you brought him some Skyline Chili. And it really got me to thinking about how much I like $20 bills. <laughs> and I really felt the need to share that uh, in unity with the other staff members who are sharing those kinds of things. So now you have that information. Do with that what you will. Um, but we are in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, and uh, I want to start out with a story by a guy, uh, about a guy named Robert Robinson. He lived at the end of the 1700s into the beginning of the 1800s. And uh, Mr. Robinson, about the age of 14, his parents uh, saw that they had a very active child. And, hey, it is time now for him to go and learn a skill. Go figure out what it is that you're going to do with your life. And so about right around age 14, they sent him off to London to become an apprentice uh, of, an, of a barber. He was going to be a guy that works at, uh, uh, as a barber. Now, uh, Robinson, like I said, was a pretty active guy. And for uh, the end of, eight, uh, of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, he was considered a pretty wild child. Um, he got to London, and whatever the city life was like uh, in uh, London at that time, he was involved in it. He got to meet a couple of friends, and they were just kind of night owls. They went out and caused whatever trouble you could possibly cause at that time without getting caught causing that trouble. About three years into his apprenticeship, he and his friends are out walking around, and they see this uh, poster, this advertisement for this preacher that's going to come in. The guy's name is George Whitfield. You may not know who that is, but if you were to go Google George Whitfield, you will find out he was a very popular guy during that time. And they thought, hey, you know what? This would be a perfect thing for us to go and really disrupt some stuff that's happening at this revival that Whitfield's going to preach at. So in their minds, they were going to show up. Uh, they were going to sit in the crowd. When Whitfield said something that sounded very profound, they were going to start heckling him. Well, they get to that evening service. Whitfield is preaching and thundering away. And one of the things they didn't count on was the size of the crowd that was going to be there. So when Whitfield said something, the crowd would respond to that right at the same time that uh, Robinson and his friends were saying things to heckle him. So it was lost in all the noise. So they said, okay, we're going to move up so that he can hear us, and we're really going to throw this thing off. Well, it took them some time to navigate through the crowd, and through that process, they actually began to hear the things that Whitfield was preaching about as he was unpacking the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the time that Robert Robinson got to the front row, he had been impacted by the things that Whitfield was preaching about. Matter of fact, he was impacted so much that that night, he decided, I'm done with becoming a barber. I need to jump into whatever it is that Whitfield has. And so he decided he was going to go into ministry. And he began his, this new apprenticeship uh, going through ministry. Well, about six years later, uh, as he's thinking about some of these events and he's journaling through some of this, he writes down this line in one of his journals. He says, I'm prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And as he messed with that line, as he ran that line over and over in his head, it turned into the hymn, Come Thou Fount of, ever, of Every Blessing. 
which we still sing today, which we still know that. Most of you heard that line. You go, yeah, I know that song. Well, it turns out Robinson actually lived a pretty hard life. Uh, He died about the age of 55. But in his later years, as he's going through some physical things and some extreme emotional things, he's, he's doing a little bit of traveling, and he's on a stagecoach. And across from him is a woman that is humming the words to this song. And she looks at him, and, and she says, Sir, what do you think about that song? Because she's been very impacted by it. And she has no idea that the author of that song is sitting across from him. But Robinson tells her, he says, Madam, I'm the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings that I had then. I think that kind of resonates with some of us in here, doesn't it? Man, some of us are chasing some of the feelings we had about God at one point in our life, or we're trying to chase the feeling that someone has explained to us about that. And if you're not there, if you haven't been there, man, you're probably going to be there at some point. There isn't any one of us in this room, man, that wants to hear these things in Scripture, and we want to feel that this is accurate. We want to feel that this is true, that it's real, that it resonates with us. This isn't all that dissimilar to the situation that the Colossian church found themselves in, that Paul was writing to. We don't know a lot about the city of uh, Colossae. You can't go visit Uh, that city right now. It was destroyed by an earthquake not too much longer after Paul wrote to them. But the city of Colossae was about 10 or 11 miles away from a larger city called Laodicea. And we have at the end of our Bible, in the book of Revelation, Jesus himself writing a letter to this church. And it's actually pretty famous words that he speaks into this church. He says, church in Laodicea, your problem right now is that you're lukewarm. Like, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And there's a lot of things that go into this, but I think it's fair for us to hear these words and go, you're kind of blah. You're kind of bland. And I bet that that's some of us right now. And Paul, I think it's safe to assume, is writing into that situation to a town that's very close and very uh, much under the influence of a city like Laodicea. Andy, last week preached through Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And this is very, very important for us to do because Paul knows that situ- the, all this situation, and I think he's telling the Colossians, guys, there's still living to do. There's still things for us to participate in. There's still uh, vigor that we need to uh, have about us when it comes to our life with Christ. Don't stop now. And in Colossians chapter 3, those first four verses, he says the way we do this is we fix our minds on things above. And it's not just something to go do, but it's an intense call to the presupposition or to the predisposition of the Christian person. Well, this week, in the, in the following verses, Paul expands that concept. What does it mean for us to put our, our minds on things above? How does that look practically for us? What does that uh, imply for everything that's going on? And I think it's important as we see Paul broadening this teaching for us that we understand what he's doing. Because what we're going to read is a couple of Paul's famous lists that he has. If you've ever studied anything else that Paul writes, he is famous for writing lists. If you do this, 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 there's an outcome that happens this way. Or don't do this, 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 and this. And so we're going to study some things that come along with these lists, but I I, I want you to know that one thing that we're looking at 
in Colossians chapter 3, Paul is talking to us about some vices, and then he's going to talk to us about some virtues. And there's a purpose to that. We ought not approach this as a checklist of things that we ought not do and things that we ought to do, because I think we're going to cheapen the text. But what Paul's doing is that he's painting a picture so that we can see what this new self looks like. Let me give you an example. At my house, we have a telescope. It's not a very good one. It's, it's kind of a cheaper one, but it does help us out when we're uh, outside and we can, we can see a little more detail of the moon. We can see some star patterns and things like this. But our telescope, if you were to take it out right now and you were to set it up in the sky, guess what you would see? Blue. That's it. You wouldn't see any stars. You wouldn't see any moon. You wouldn't see any of that stuff. But if you wait until about 9.30 tonight and you set it up and you look at the same spot, all of those stars are going to pop. All of those stars are going to be seen and visible through our telescope because we now have the dark sky as our background. And this is what we're going to uh, experience now through Colossians chapter 3. We're going to see Paul painting that black background, that dark background, so that we can see the light pop out just a little bit, and we can examine that, and maybe we're able to grab onto it in a little bit better fashion. But one more important contextual note that we need to know. Andy mentioned this weeks and weeks ago, but this is important for our text today. Paul is speaking to a group of people that um, are in the middle of hearing and experiencing some very popular philosophy of the day. And one of those philosophies is that the way that you feel spiritual, the way that you go and, uh, and chase that feeling that we talked about a second ago, is that you give yourself over to certain urges and emotional sensations so that your experience will tell you what is true. And he's speaking into that right now. So we pick up in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. This is what we read. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. I'm going to stop right there for a second. <coughs> Several years ago, there was a guy by the name of John Owen, and he wrote a book titled this, On the Mortification of Sin in Believers. And he talks about this idea of mortification. He sees passage like this in, in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul starts out saying, put to death these things. And he jumps all over this concept of put to death, and he calls it the art of mortification. And what he means by mortification, he says it's a, metaphor, a metaphorical expression of putting away living things so that they may die. It's to take away the principle of all its strength, its vigor, and its power so it can't act or put forth proper actings of its own. And in this way, he says, Paul is calling us to mortify the indwelling sin that you and I carry. And it implies that sin is a living agent that needs mortifying. And he does this against uh, something that was a common practice in Owen's day, which I think is actually a common practice in our day. He says we put, we put sin to death instead of just trying to manage sin. And I don't know about you, that resonates with me. And I try to manage sin all the time. I at least try to manage it so that you don't see it. 
And sometimes I try to manage it to fool myself. And Owen says, no, instead of managing it, you mortify it. The mortification of sin involves bringing sin, that which breeds in the darkness. He says to bring it to light so that it can die. And here in chapter 3 of Colossians, the emphasis is on putting to death rather than just all the things that Paul lists. And again, it's not a checklist that Paul's talking about. This isn't all the thou shalt not type of thing going on. But he's saying, no, we put to death the indwelling sin, and here's what it might look like for you. A guy by the name of J.B. London actually organizes this list into three different categories. And he says, if you, if you look at these categories and go to other places in the New Testament, Paul says, we're actually supposed to flee from these things. And so that was the impetus to his organization of these categories. The first category he says that Paul brings up is sexual temptation. He mentions sexual immorality, impurity, passion. And he says, these things strive and breathe and breed in the dark places of our lives. You think about that, that's probably pretty true for us, isn't it? G.K. Chesterton once wrote about this. He says, I mean that if you or I were dealing with a mind that was growing morbid, we should, che- we should be chiefly concerned not so much to give it arguments or rationalizations as we should be to give it air, to convince it that there was something cleaner or cooler outside the suffocation of a single argument. Air, not just argument, is needed. What's he talking about? He's saying when sexual temptation shows up and reveals itself to us, and we go so to such far lengths to hide it, to keep it from ourselves, to keep it from the people that know us, to keep it from our church. He says instead of using rationalizations, instead of justifying it, instead of trying to explain it away, your mind doesn't need those arguments. Your mind needs air. It needs to breathe. It needs to experience stuff that is real and healthy and true. John Piper once preached about this about 30 years ago before internet stuff was a bigger deal. And he said, he, he was talking about this very thing, and he said, isn't it a coincidence? Or he said, do you think it's a coincidence that when you drive by on the highway and you see adult uh, bookstores and video stores, that none of them have windows? And he talks about it's these dark, secret rooms where sexual temptation grabs a hold of us. Another preacher talks about this, and this is what he says. He says, the sky is the enemy of lust. The sky is a great power against lust. Pure, lovely, wholesome, powerful, large-hearted things cannot abide the soul of a sexual fantasy at the same time. Get out of dark places. Get out of lonely rooms. Get out of boxed-in places. Get out of the places where it is just small, me and my mind and my imagination, what I can do with it, and get to where I am just surrounded by color and beauty and bigness and loveliness. Man, for those of us that have sexual temptation that's eating at us, one of the things that we ought to do against that is get out of the darkness, get out of the secret, get out of the windowless places, and let's focus in on the sky. It is not a coincidence that this is the first category that shows up right after Paul says, turn your eyes, your mind to things above. And I'm telling you, we cannot do that when we're closed in. The second category that we can organize some of these things uh, that London talks about, he says, is idolatry. Paul calls it evil desire and covetousness. 
Now, most of the people I talk to about these things most think that this is a problem for somebody else. All of us can think about people who uh, have evil desire and covetousness as an issue for them. But what happens to you when you look at your own hearts, when you examine your own self with this? Brian Wilkerson calls these the twin towers. He says, evil desire with its greedy flavor is insatiable desire for more than you need. You have an insatiable desire for more than you need? Is that what dominates a lot of your thoughts? Is that what dominates a lot of your emotion? He says, the other one, covetousness, is an incurable fear that others have it better than you. Man, do you play the comparison game? Do you look around at others and go, man, I wish I had that, or it is wrong that they have that and I don't? It might be a sign that these twin towers are dominating your spiritual life. All of these are idolatry because you've clearly removed life with God as your soul and chief desire because those wants and fears have turned the tables to be your chief affections. Let's be honest. Let's bring those to light so that they can die. This third category that's mentioned in this list, uh, is uh, he just lists as obscenity. Things that we say and do that are obscene and even think about. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. I don't know if you know this, but in the year 2020, we had a strange year. We had a strange stuff that was going on around us, and that wasn't just here at South Rock. It wasn't just in Derby. That was worldwide. And over across the pond in England, um, they had to experience some of those things too. And there was a place that's called the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park. And it's actually a sanctuary for animals. Some animals that were having uh, uh, some issues out in the wild, some people who were taking on some exotic animals, and all of a sudden they couldn't take them on, and so we need a place to take these things, stuff like that. Well, Lincolnshire Wildlife Park uh, experienced kind of an uptick in this, uh, uh, in their, with the animals that they were receiving in the year 2020 because the pandemic really messed some things up for the uh, people that are uh, in this kind of world. And so they talked about, uh, the news talked about that one week in September of 2020, Lincolnshire Wildlife Park brought in five parrots from three different places. And so these parrots, they had to put in a room until they was cleared, that they were healthy enough, blah, 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 all these things like this. Well, one of the parrots had picked up on some very vulgar language from its previous owner. And in isolation, it would say these obscene things to which the workers at the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park would start laughing. And uh, the more that they laughed, the more that this parrot would respond with more vulgar things to a point that the other parrots were laughing and then repeating the same things. And it would go on so much so that the, the employees of Lincolnshire uh, Wildlife Park were actually starting to get offended by it. And they're like, all right, this is enough. And then when they started to open up their gates, uh, people that were visiting this place were hearing these same things. And guess what they were doing? They were doing the same thing as some of you are doing right now. They started laughing. And the more they laughed, the more the parrots started to repeat it. To a point, people bringing small kids in were now asking for refunds, and Lincolnshire Wildlife Park had a publicity problem. And they actually had to come out, hold a press conference, and say, here's what we're going to do about this. My point in telling you all of this is that our obscene thoughts and actions and words will always have an audience. And some of us have justified that obscenity 
by the response of others in our lives. And Paul says, ah, this is stuff that we need to put to death. This is stuff that we need to bring to light so that the cross can kill it. We'll always have an audience for that. But he goes on to talk about this. It's not just about what is it that we need to put to death. He picks up in verse 10 saying this. He says, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all and he is all. And it is so important to understand that that's the basis for this new self. All have the same status at the cross of Jesus. There's a, an old adage that goes like this, God has no grandchildren. And I know that that's cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. None of us hold special position when it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 talks about how we are children of God, and, and, and we're, we're such children of God. It's such an important thing that all of us are children of God. Those who have placed our faith in Christ are children of God that we actually get an inheritance that's the same as the inheritance of Jesus himself. That's a pretty big deal. There is no special favor when it comes to being at the foot of Christ. Spiritual hierarchies are fictions. Vices and virtues are not about doing or being better or getting ahead. They are about our identity in following Jesus Christ. When we say, I need to be a better Christian, that's a fictitious statement. What we need to say is we just need to be with him. Paul continues on talking about this. He says in verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, so that to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Man, do we hear what he's talking about here? The, this word speaks for itself, doesn't it? But I remind you, this is not a checklist. Paul is not giving us more honeydews right here. We're not replacing one list that we failed at with another list that we'll probably fail at again. That's not what he's doing. It would be dangerous for us to hear this and fall into the trap of thinking that this is God's 12 things to do so that we can have a successful life. You see, if we do that, what we're doing is trading management of our sin for management of things that we're going to sin about here in the future. That's not what Paul's doing. Sky Jathani writes in a book um, that, that he talks about that when we do this, when we look at the scriptures as just principles, as just uh, different ways of managing our already dysfunctional selves, that what we're doing is we're, we're, we're putting ourselves in a posture that puts us over God. It reduces faith to these principles. Paul shows five things required for a promising life. We could put these virtues, though, into practice and not really need God at all. I mean, think about this. I have non-Christian friends, and if I were to call them up today and say, man, I just got to tell you, there's some things I'm working on on myself here. 
I, I want you to know that I'm going to work on being more compassionate. I, I'm going to try really hard to be kinder. And, and, and I want you to know that, man, I see my pride. I'm going to try to be more humble with you, okay? And, and, and know that I'm also working on patience, right? And we would tell that to our non-Christian friends. And guess what my friends would tell me? They'd be like, good, let me know what I can do to help. Let me know what I can do to help you in this kind of movement, this self-improvement thing that you're doing. But when we do this, we miss the point altogether of this list that Paul's giving us. If you were to go uh, onto Amazon right now and you were to look on their book section, you were to type in Christian books, you would find this. About 2,000 books would pop up with the word principle in them. And, And another 500 would actually pop up with the word effective in the title. And I'm telling you, we're missing the point. One of those books is called Jesus CEO. And I'm not picking on the author or anything like this. I I think there's probably pretty pure motives for what she's trying to accomplish. But what she did is she studied the Gospels. And she she said, I want to see how Jesus managed the people that uh, he was following. And what are the principles of his management that we can take and apply to our own organizations right now? And she said there's three of them. And she walks you through that throughout the whole book. And here's the kicker to it. She says, if you apply these principles, there's quote, unquote, guaranteed success. We are missing the point. Paul's not giving us new things to manage. Paul, if we do this, all we're doing is going, yeah, we got a new lukewarmness. We got a new blandness to look at. Man, are we taking off our old self just to put on someone else's? We're missing the point. Paul doesn't give the Colossians a new honeydew list. This is Paul calling them to a life with God. God's word dwelling among us is our grand conversation we have with him. We sing and take in wisdom, not with obscene talk in our hearts, but thankfulness instead. And just as our sin is not to be managed, neither is Jesus. Don't approach this as a checklist. Approach this as a call, a beckoning to live a life with the creator of the universe. I can't help but think of one of my favorite conversations in one of my favorite books. Um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's, if you've never read this before, um, there, it, it's, it's kind of a parable about describing uh, the spiritual journey with the, the Christ, the Savior. And in the books, the lion Aslan is that Savior. And Lucy is hearing about Aslan for the first time, so she's asking questions about him. And she asks this, she says, is he safe? Safe? asked Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, Mr. Tubness chimes in. He says, he's wild, you know. He's not a tame lion. And Colossians 3.17 tells us this. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This isn't a verse on morality or filtering your heart before it leaves your mouth. It is a pastor pleading with his church to live a life that is with Jesus. He's not one to manage in our life. He is not tame, but he is good. He mortified sin once and for all so that we don't have to wear it any longer. 
so that we get to live under a new name. So we let everything we say and do be worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, it is a blessing to be in your word this morning. And I pray that this word seeps into the bones of those who desire to call you king. God, we are not reading a bunch of things that we got to check off so that you would approve of each and every one of us. Lord, we come before you saying that your cross, your resurrection, and your ascension into heaven has approved those who place our faith on you. God, I pray that when we read these things, that it's what we desire because you live in us. Would you help us be a church that lives with you and not just one that lives for you and not just one that uh, lives under you, but we get to experience new life because there is a lot of living to do and Jesus is the evidence of that. Lord, I thank you for the blessing that you give each and every one of us. Would you give us the courage to bring that which is killing us to the light so that you can kill it, so that we can experience life and life to the full. For it is in Christ Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.